This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. They knew they couldn't win, so they said, let's go to court. Okay, so that is uh, U.S. President Donald Trump. We still say president, although we are waiting for the results, and it's still going to be quite a wait. In states like Georgia and Michigan, which are now critical to the outcome, you've got 8% of the votes in Georgia that still have to be counted, and it's a nail-biter there, so every vote is going to count. And in Michigan, same thing, but 14% of the votes still have to be counted. And because so many of them are absentee ballots and and you know mail-in ballots, that kind of thing, uh, in Georgia, they actually stopped counting overnight let the people go to sleep, get up in the morning. They're going to resume counting this morning. So it is a lot busier uh, than we thought it was going to be at this hour. So still, there is m- like much contention about what the result is actually going to be. Right now, like if you look at the New York Times and the way they're you know setting everything up here, they're saying 227 for Joe Biden and 213 for Donald Trump and 270 is needed to win. But there's still so many votes that are kind of up in the air on this. Likely will take today, perhaps even into tomorrow before we get a good idea of what is actually going to happen. I tell you, I don't know about you, but I watching the TV last night was kind of overwhelming. So I was checking in and out and I just thought every time I check in, they're saying something completely different. So I just thought, you know what? Forget about it. Go to bed. Don't think about it. Uh, and that worked out well because when I woke up the next morning, like this morning, everything seemed to be quite different with what the results are. So you tell me, have you been watching? Are you following along? Uh, were you fascinated by this process as well? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. And in a moment, we're going to chat with David Aiken about what is going on down there. But boy, I do not envy the people who have been working on this, people like Donna Friesen and Jeff Semple and Jackson Prosco, uh, everybody who has been up all night uh, doing this. It's been kind of crazy. So right now, let's check in with our Global News Chief Political Correspondent, David Aiken, who joins us. Good morning, David. Morning, yeah. It's uh, doing a lot of math today, isn't it, Kenny? <laughs> Everybody's counting Michigan plus Pennsylvania plus Nevada plus Arizona. Um, it's going to be math for the next few days. Yeah, how much longer do you think this is going to go? Were you, did you think it was going to be as complicated as this? Uh, no, to be honest, uh, you know, I, I do think that the pollsters may yet be correct. I know pollsters, if, you know, watching social media, watching some reaction are getting kicked around a bit this morning. Um, there's a lot of votes still to be counted, uh, you know, a million votes still in, in Pennsylvania. And so uh, mail-in ballots tend to be favored by progressive voters. We're going to see that in B.C. I mean, there's still half a million mail-in ballots yeah. to be counted in B.C. And even though Horgan won the majority, I bet the NDP are going to pick up another maybe two or three seats. In Saskatchewan, mail-in ballots turned into two more seats for new Democrats in Saskatchewan in their provincial election. And we're going to see that in the United States. Democrats largely went mail-in. So we'll see how things went, uh, see things how it turned out. But certainly I think Democrats uh, are a bit disappointed that it wasn't an automatic win last night 
that they didn't, for example, win Florida. Um, Trump, you know, Trump, of course, proclaimed victory last night, and a lot of Republicans are very upset that he did that, saying it was uh, very dangerous to do. It was a step too far. And had he not done that, the Republicans could, Trump could have boasted about a lot of things. He increased his vote support among women. He increased his vote support among Latinos, particularly Cuban Latinos. Increased his vote support among blacks. Oddly, he decreased his vote support among white guys. But uh, other than that, I mean, he could have said he had a good night and hoped to win. But instead, he uh, he has his claim that he's won. And of course, he has not no one has declared the victory. But how can they be surprised? You know, David, like they've watched him work now for four years. Can they really be right. surprised that he did something that they didn't want him to do? Yeah, no, exactly. It, it isn't a surprise. So that's we come down this morning. And, and right now, the, the ballots that are being counted in Michigan, in Wisconsin. I don't know if you've had a chance to update your listeners, but Michigan's tied right now. Wisconsin, Biden's narrowly ahead. Biden's ahead in Nevada, although that lead is shrinking. And he's ahead in Arizona. And if you just take those four sw- uh, swing states, Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, Wisconsin, and add them to what Biden's got, he's the president. That's 270. That's what he needs. And that means Pennsylvania won't matter. Uh, so it is going to be, everybody's going to be doing these, as they say, math for the next uh, couple of days, including the politicians here in Ottawa. Wednesday morning is caucus day, so all the politicians gather and do their normal caucus routine. And I'm, I'm almost certain because they're politicians, they're going to talk about yeah. politics, and it's, the talk is all about what's going on south of the border. What surprised you, David? Like, watching this happen and unfold, was there something in the results that you thought, oh, I didn't see that coming? Uh, not, I mean, hindsight's 2020. I suppose not. I mean, Trump's strength in Florida, particularly among, as I say, uh, some Latino Cuban men, really helped him out in Florida. And so I think Democrats have to understand what happened there, because Hillary, when she ran four years ago, Cubans, men or women, really liked Hillary. They didn't like Biden so much. On the other hand, Biden did seem to connect to Latino voters who have more connections to Mexico and Central America, and that's why he's, uh, he's on top in Arizona. So uh, I thought that was interesting, but, uh, you know, Trump clearly has a lot of strength. One of the things I think that everybody outside America, and that includes Canadians, have to struggle with, I guess, or try to understand is, um, Ipsos did a poll mm-hmm. of people in 25 countries, and 23 of those countries went for the Democrat ticket. Russia went for Trump, Poland went for Trump, but everybody else, including Canada, went for the Democrats, and Canadians went by 50 percentage points. And, um, and yet there's 60 million Americans who said, no, Trump's our guy. So this is something that I think Canadians have to sort of try to understand, figure out, because we, uh, we got those trade ties, we got uh, environment ties, working on environment files, and of course we're trying to fight COVID-19 together, and and the White House is a very important part of that to Canadian uh, efforts. So true, so true. David, thank you for your update this morning. No problem, Simi. Cheers. You too. That's David Aiken, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent. We'll, of course, keep you updated on how things unfold. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about some of the other things that went on and got passed yesterday with the U.S. election. Some interesting stuff happening in Oregon. And our Nikki Reitmeyer joins us now with more on that. Hi, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, this is something that I think Vancouverites, British Columbians will be able to relate to well because it's a conversation that's certainly been had in our province down in Oregon. They voted yesterday to approve some really, really progressive drug laws. So first, they voted to decriminalize small amounts of hard drugs. And this makes Oregon the first state in the whole country to adopt such a law. And they also voted to legalize the therapeutic use of psychedelic mushrooms. 
Wow. So that's, it's just so amazing when you think that 10 years ago, there wasn't a single state that had legalized cannabis. And now look where we are just 10 years later. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, actually, because yesterday as well, New Jersey and Arizona, they voted in favor of becoming the latest U.S. states to legalize the recreational use of cannabis. So they're joining 11 other states who have already fully legalized marijuana use for adults. So we are continuing to see more and more states go down that path as well and to legalize marijuana. And interestingly enough, Oregon is actually going to be using some of that money that the state brings in from the sale of marijuana in order to establish drug treatment centers in order to pay for some of this funding as they push people towards recovery. Because at the end of the day, that's what this program is really all about. It's not just about allowing people to use hard drugs as they so feel. It's about trying to encourage people to get them into recovery centers instead of putting them through the prison system. So they're establishing these drug treatment facilities, these recovery programs funded in part by the state's marijuana tax revenue, as well as from state prison savings, which they're expecting as well. That is such an interesting idea, because that's something that we've been talking about here in BC, right? Yeah, I mean, I think this will sound familiar for so many people, because it was just back this past summer, when John Horgan sent a letter to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, saying that decriminalization would, and this is a quote, reduce the systemic stigma associated with illicit drug use and support people to access the services they need. He said that criminal possessions or criminal prohibitions are ineffective in deterring drug use. He said criminalization of drug possession directly leads to both individuals and systemic stigma and discrimination that prevents people from seeking services. So our premier he he pushed very hard to the federal government to ask them to decriminalize the possession of illegal drugs for personal use, those hard illegal drugs saying if they're small amounts, if it's those personal amounts, not big amounts that someone, you know, is trying to ship to try to sell. No trafficking or something, yeah. Exactly, exactly. It's the smaller amounts that he was looking to decriminalize, which again is very, very progressive. Maybe not such a surprise coming from British Columbia because we are a fairly progressive province, but it's an interesting sign of the times when we're having these conversations and in turn, our American neighbors to the South, who are typically a little bit more conservative, are having these conversations as well. It's also interesting to watch in a a conversation like this, how opinions change over time, right? We saw Mm -hmm. this with gay marriage, where Mm -hmm. it just got a hold and then all of a sudden opinions started to change. And now we're also seeing it kind of with the legalization of drugs. For instance, in Arizona last night, they also decisively passed a measure to legalize recreational cannabis, but they voted on it just three or four years ago. I think in 2016, they voted on it too and rejected it. So now they've decided, yeah, we changed our mind on that. We actually like that idea. And I wonder if some of that change has come from seeing how much money the other states are able to bring in in tax dollars. Or how it's just not a big deal, right? Like, I think for a long time, just like in Canada, right? when we had the discussions about Canada legalizing cannabis, oh my goodness, the phones would light up with people thinking this was going to be the end and it was, right, this was the descent into anarchy (laughs) and it was going to be terrible. (laughs) And it, it wasn't. Like, it's just not. It just, life goes on and everything moves forward. And maybe that's what some of those states are seeing too. 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And of course, I remember those times very yeah. well. It was so controversial and working at CKNW through some of those really big events in Canadian history is always really interesting because you hear so many conversations, you speak to so many people about it. And I definitely remember the phones ringing and people yes. saying, you know, everything's going to change and Canada's going to go to hell in a handbasket. And then Life goes legalization on. came and went and nothing at the end of the day really changed. Now we're talking about hard drugs. And I know that That's people... That's a bigger leap, perhaps? It's a bigger leap. It's a bit more uncomfortable. Uh, hard drugs are very clearly much more damaging to individuals, to families, to societies. The hard drug use and addiction is extremely tragic. And it is what we see when we look at the downtown east side in a lot of scenarios. And it's certainly something that we need to get a hold of in yeah. our society. Recovery centers are so fundamentally important to try to move people away from hard drug use. So I think when that conversation about the decriminalization of personal use of hard drugs comes up, people immediately get uncomfortable because they know the damage it can do to an individual, to yeah. a family, and to a society. But it's interesting how the other voices that are in favor of such measures. I mean, we talked about how John Horgan petitioned the federal government to try to initiate something similar here as to what just occurred in Oregon. But on top of that, if you remember, the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, they also called yeah. for the decriminalization of simple possession of illicit drugs. That, I remember hearing that news at the time and being so surprised because here you have the police saying, we think that this is also a good idea to get That's people- a big deal. Yeah, into recovery programs off the streets and off of drug use and out of the criminal system. Really interesting. So, by the way, Nikki, did you watch a lot of the coverage last night? Any of it? I watched as much as I could bear. Until, what does that mean? <laughs> and, well, until it got so late. And then, you know, you realize that they're not going to come to a decision tonight. Exactly. It, they probably won't even come to a decision early this morning. It's going to take some time before we find out the news as to who the president of the United States will be. I stayed up to watch, you know, as, as things were starting to change a little bit and they, they were going back and forth with the electoral seats climbing. And, and then uh, Biden came out and made his speech, which I thought was quite interesting, sort of calming there. his yes. voters. Yeah, hang in there. You know, we can still do this. And then I heard that Trump made a speech. But by that point, I was dreaming of sugar plums dancing <laughs> through my mind. I was I was well asleep by that point in time. So I woke up to see the news this morning. But did you stay up? Did you well, did you watch much of it? I watched some of it. And it became very clear, like if you're watching at 7 and then at 8 and at 8.30, that, that like nobody on the TV really knew what was going on. Right? Like yeah. <laughs> it was going to be a long time. So I thought, why am I watching this to hear anything decisive? Because that's just not going to happen. So then I turned it off and read my book and periodically just checked in on my computer on globalnews.ca to see what was actually going on. And then I woke up this morning and now I feel like things are going to start happening today. So this is when I feel like it's all going to come together. Yeah, it was funny last night. I, I decided I was going to flip through some of the channels to, you know, see what the different analysts were saying. But I also wanted to see how different news organizations around the world were presenting the American elections. So, of course, you know, you're watching the American news, but I'd switch over to the Canadian news networks, see how we were talking about it. I noticed the BBC was doing a full coverage event on it. So, you know, flipped over to see how the BBC was talking about it. But at the end of the day, I mean, you can't beat the Americans at their own game. They had the best coverage for sure. It was kind 
kind of funny seeing the English try to talk about this election. Yeah. I thought, no, I'm going to go back to the source <laughs> here. I'm going back to the American news. So true. But, yeah. And at the end of the day, I mean, like you said, nobody really knew what was happening and we still don't at this moment. No, we don't. But thank you very much for that, Nikki. <laughs> Thanks, Simi. That is our Nikki Reitmeyer there. Yeah, we're still learning what's going on. For instance, you may have gone to bed last night thinking that, you know, Donald Trump was leading in Wisconsin and Michigan, and then you wake up this morning and find out, oh, no, that's actually turned around now. Joe Biden is now leading in Wisconsin and Michigan as they start to count the absentee and mail-in ballots. So, yeah, things are changing today. Uh, It's certainly not the picture that I went to bed seeing last night. This is Mornings with Simi. You probably heard about that trial program that Vancouver International Airport is rolling out. They're going to make rapid testing available to some customers. I think they're partnering up with WestJet on that uh, before their flight so they can have a little more COVID-19 uncertainty before they fly. Well, there's more calls for doing something like that in other sectors as well. Safe Care BC is now calling for more widespread testing as well, but in the care home environment. Joining us now to talk more about this is Jennifer Lyle, the CEO of Safe Care BC. Jennifer, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me. So why do you think this would help? Well, we talk about in this pandemic the need for those layers of protection and detection. And so for from our standpoint, what this really does is it adds in that extra layer of detection. We already have these screening protocols in place for staff members who are coming into continuing care homes uh, and also for people, family members who are coming in to support their loved ones. But sometimes it can be hard to tell, you know, if you're if you're tired because you have COVID or if you're tired because you just didn't have a good night's sleep. And that's one of the symptoms on that questionnaire. So what this does is, particularly as we talk about increased rates of community spread, it adds that extra layer of protection at the point of entry as people are coming into care homes. Okay, and so how would this work? So you just, would every care home do this? Who would administer this? Well, what we're really asking for is two different things. So um, for one, we're asking that the provincial government consider the use of rapid testing at point of entry for people who, as they come into care homes. So for example, if a family member wanted to come in to support their loved one, um, they could uh, be administered a test just at the point of entry. The turnaround time on these is quite quick. In some cases, it's 15 minutes. They get the result and then they're able, assuming they pass the other screening questions as well, then they're able to proceed and join their loved one, support them. The other thing that we're asking for too, and this is 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 much more of a practical application and not necessarily just with rapid testing, but we are asking for a shift in how we manage outbreaks because one of the things that we've seen is that there are situations where there may be some cases that are not caught early enough in the outbreak process. And if we had a mass testing approach whereby the second one staff member tests positive, we do a mass testing in that care home or in that in that neighborhood, for example, mm-hmm. we would be able to catch more cases that way. Would we also be able to perhaps allow some loved ones to come visit? Well, that's one of the things that we're suggesting because we know that there's there's only one way that COVID gets into a care home. It's through the front door. And one of the key concerns that we've heard from the sector around facilitating safe family member presence in care homes is how do we screen effectively? And that becomes even more critical of a question when we talk about, you know, we had 187 cases reported in Fraser Health yesterday. You can imagine um, how care home workers can feel anxious, not only about being the one themselves to accidentally 
simply get exposed in the community. But what happens when we, we bring more family members back into care homes to support their loved ones? As we bring more people into a care home, our risk of exposure goes up. So that's why we want to suggest that this is a good way right. of supplementing our screening processes. Okay, so what has the response been to this? Like, how do we put this into action? It's interesting because we've seen this adopted in other jurisdictions already. So, for example, with that outbreak management approach, Ontario adapted this strategy of mass testing. Um, We see Nova Scotia, the recommendations that came out of their second wave report, spoke specifically to uh, moving towards having serial testing of staff, caregivers, volunteers coming into care homes. We've also seen it um, brought into care homes in the States recently as well, specifically rapid testing. So we know that there's interest, uh, and we've seen situations where with outbreaks, even here in BC, where the mass testing approach has been done. Mm -hmm. It's just what we're asking for now is that this be looked at at a provincial-wide level. Okay, so how do you make that happen? Then, Have there been talks with the Ministry of Health or the different health regions? Yeah, so we have brought it up with the Ministry of Health, both in terms of that outbreak piece and also, too, as a tool to help facilitate greater family, mem- uh, greater family presence in long-term care. So we, we hope that those, those discussions will continue um, because, again, we see, we see this adoption happening in other jurisdictions. And when we talk about those added layers of detection and prevention, this is another tool in the toolkit. Okay, so are you hopeful, though, um, Jennifer? Because a lot of people haven't been able to... We we still have concerns, I guess, about what's going on in our long-term care homes in terms of keeping COVID-19 at bay. Is this the thing that you think could make the difference? I do. And the reason why I say that is when we talk to care homes that have had outbreaks recently where, for example, a mass testing approach was adopted right off the bat, what we hear from staff is in addition to giving them more confidence about how the outbreak is being managed, it also gives them reassurance. It makes them more confident that they, they're not, they haven't been exposed. And we know that no test is perfect, but when we talk about around 80% of continuing care staff experiencing some form of anxiety with regards to this pandemic. That's really important. Sure sounds like it. Yeah, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Jennifer Lyle, CEO of Safe Care BC. They are making the call this morning. They are asking for more widespread testing, like rapid testing programs in the care home environment so that they can essentially keep more people safe there. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So many eyes, of course, going on on what's happening down in the United States this morning. Could be today, could be tomorrow, could be Friday that we actually know the results. So we thought, let's talk about that. Our next guest was the Canada Research Chair in Public Opinion, Elections and Representation until his retirement this year, but he's still a professor emeritus with UBC. Richard Johnson joins us now to talk what's going on in the United States. Good morning. Morning. What do you think about what's happening? Well, uh... Two things. On one hand, it's a much narrower result than the polls led us to expect. And so here we are still talking about it. And, and frankly, we might, we're likely to be still talking about it for the rest of the week. And there will be litigation from the president uh, that could stretch it out longer. But as things stand now, 
it looks like Joe Biden will win the presidency. He, he actually, strictly speaking, won't even need Pennsylvania to do it, although uh, stay tuned for Nevada because it has a reverse pattern of absentee ballots from the other states. Um, but uh, the president will try and tie this up in courts and see if he can uh, try to get some of these absentee ballots excluded. I, I think he will fail. But he does have people on his side. Speaking of which, I was just reading this morning about the United States Postal Service, which failed to comply with a judge's order yesterday to, to rush deliver ballots that had already been mailed. And they submitted a list this morning that shows even in the state of Georgia, they failed to deliver thousands and thousands of ballots. Well, that's interesting because Georgia is one of the surprises of this year. At the moment, at least, the president is ahead, and uh, in the one seat that will be decided this week, the Republicans are ahead. But the New York Times uh, needle, so-called, is forecasting that when Georgia is counted out, Joe Biden will narrowly win the state. Who would have predicted that? Yeah, but we still don't know, though. That's the thing. And we his, don't. historically, right. Richard, you know, I think people expect that we get a, a, an, a result on election night. But historically, that hasn't always been the case, has it? No, it's not. Usually, you're able to make a call about who is the president uh, and the balance of power in the Senate and the House. So uh, the, the, the most signal exception to that was 2000, which really was decided in the Supreme Court in December. And I think one of the fears was that we would see a replay of that. It, it seems unlikely at the moment, but it does depend on whether and how many courts accommodate the president in his attempt to block the count. What do the results tell you about what's going on in America right now? Uh, one, it's not a pretty picture. Uh, the, uh, the, it's a deeply divided country, and probably we will have some amount of gridlock going forward because it seems unlikely that the Democrats will take control of the Senate, so we'll have a divided result, and that means not a lot will happen legislatively. The other thing that's going on, though, is that there is a geographic realignment going on. So even though um, Biden seems bound to take the three so-called blue wall states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, the, within those states, the educational divide is wider even than 2016. So the president has consolidated his base uh, amongst uh, non-college-educated voters. On the other hand, the Democrats are spreading into parts of the country that they've been excluded, on, excluded from for a time. A large part of that rests on the Hispanic votes. And so although they lost Texas, Texas was way more competitive than it was in previous years. Uh, and uh, North Carolina competitive, although they had hoped to win that one. And the fact that we're even still holding out for the results in Georgia is quite a stretch. Quite, what, a, quite a stretch. What do you like, what can you interpret about voter enthusiasm from both political parties? Like, was there an edge from one party to the other? At the end of the day, I think that both parties were more intense. Enthusiasm doesn't actually capture it somehow, but certainly intensity, care about the outcome, uh, the fact that so many people have turned out and voted this. This will be a record turnout just in terms of absolute numbers, but it's also going to be a high turnout by proportionate standards, as, as high as we've seen in over a century. So it's, it, 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 it goes to an intensification of commitment to the political process, but that accompanies polarization between the parties. Because that's what we've seen, isn't it? There was no blue wave. Instead, what we see is a country that is more polarized than ever. That's right. Uh, the 
we don't know what the final count will be, but I'm guessing that uh, Mr. Biden will win by about three percentage points. So it'll be about the same margin that Hillary Clinton had last time, just a more efficiently distributed right. one. So yeah, this is a this is a country in which. Um, uh, people have strong opinions, but they're strongly opposed ones. What do you think then about the efforts or the discussions anyway to change the electoral college system? Very hard to do. And not least because uh, <coughs> pardon me, ch- changing it would require a, su- a supermajority in the Senate to, to get it out to ratification by states. That supermajority is unimaginable. And uh, a supermajority of the states would have to agree. Well, that includes a lot of states that are absolute beneficiaries of the, of the Electoral College as they see it, smaller states. So it's really probably not going to happen. What it's was the very intention? very hard to change the Constitution. Yeah, what was the intention of that? I think a lot of people don't also understand the way that system works. So what, why was the Electoral College set up that way? Well, there's two things you have to understand. One is why do the states have the number of electoral votes that they do, right? And basically, deep down, the story is to make it possible for slave states to have their votes counted broadly proportionally to the population, even though a large part of that population were slaves, okay? If you had just direct popular vote, the white populations of the southern slave states would be outvoted by the white populations of the non-slave states to the north. So that's the first, that's the starting point. Uh, Then the question is, how do you assign electoral votes within states? There was nothing in the Constitution, there is nothing in the Constitution about that. That's entirely the result Hmm. of states' own choices. And there, what happened was that early on, uh, legislators in individual states realized that if they would coordinate their electoral votes, they could have power out of proportion to their numbers so long as other states did not coordinate in the same way. Very quickly, everybody recognized that logic, and so you wound up with what we call the unit rule. And that's why we talk about the battleground. That's why we're looking at Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, for example, because if, if, if you are the plurality winner in any state, you get all of the Electoral College votes. Pennsylvania has 20 Electoral College votes. Right, so that's the way it was set up, although, so you're saying that it didn't have to be set up that way, but that's just the way it has come to be. That's the way it is. But the Constitution of the United States is extremely hard to to, uh, amend. Okay, so essentially, love it or hate it, this is the way it's going to go. I think there's no getting around that. What do you think that when you hear about the mail-in ballots, the absentee ballots, and all the advanced voting that's going on, like does the Constitution allow for all that, or once again, are those things that they have just adapted to? It's the latter. The, the, the Constitution is actually quite silent on most of those things. Uh, when the Constitution was written, America was not as democratic as it has since become. Uh, and so this is up to states. The thing that I'm actually impressed by how good a job they've done, considering mm-hmm. the challenge that they've faced. And the challenge reflects the fact that, in a way, it's not a single election. It's not even 50 elections. It's hundreds and thousands of elections, because a lot of this stuff takes place at the county or city level. Because of the sheer number of electoral choices that are being made 
uh, at any given election. So it's not just President, Senate, and House. It's state assemblies, state legislatures, state uh, senates. It's statewide executive positions. It's citizens' initiatives and referendums. Uh, It's dog catchers, you name it. So in some sense, you you have to make the ballot and count the ballot at that geographic unit where all the all the uh, races align, and that's typically the county. And some counties are rich, some counties are poor. Some counties are as as clean and honest as the day is long. Others have histories of corruption. And so it's, it is this kind of massive, shambling, decentralized operation. Uh, the, the good news that it's hard for a dictator to take it over, the bad news is that it also has a big kind of uncertainty quotient hanging around it because of the variation in the competence and capacity of states and counties. Wow, you just illustrated it so well for us. Richard, thank you so much for your time this morning. You're welcome. Richard Johnson, who's a UBC political science professor emeritus at UBC. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, having swimming lessons is a rite of passage for kids in Canada. I mean, I wouldn't know how to swim if not for taking lessons. And having those lessons is also a pathway for kids who really enjoy that sport to take a more competitive route with it. Except now, all of that is changing. Let's talk with John Atkinson, a high-performance director at Swimming Canada this morning. Good morning, John. Good morning to you. What are you seeing right now in terms of kids and swimming lessons and just being a part of the whole swimming scene? Yeah, it's a concerning time. Uh, one of the big issues are uh, swimming pools and facilities and being able to actually get access to them, which is, is causing some problems. So does that mean that kids aren't getting their lessons? Are they falling behind? Well, I think it's a matter of um, youth and their activity and being healthy and having opportunities. And that's suffering because some pools are either not open uh, or they are open with restrictions, uh, which is preventing uh, young people from joining swimming clubs. And I think this is something that's happening across Canada and we're at about 50% of our normal membership for this time of a a regular year. 50%, that's a lot. It is, and, you know, we kind of look at where things are heading, and uh, as a national sport, uh, Swimming Canada, we've we've looked at our clubs, and this is the information from our memberships, and... uh, We know that we have really good, safe, risk-mitigating plans in place for clubs to return and for young people to swim. What are the consequences, do you think, of having such low numbers involved in swimming right now? Well, I think it's something that, you know, we all talk of, both the physical and mental health issues for, for young people and for the community as a whole. Um, a lot of people have really great benefits from being able to go to swimming pools, uh, swim for fitness, swim for competitive reasons in clubs. And I think all of that is, is something that really alleviates pressure on the health service uh, for the country now and in the future. And I think we're facing perhaps a lost generation of athletes to the sport, a lost generation to activity and consequences may come down the line if, if this is something that isn't addressed in the short term 
and we can get people back in the pool safely. Well, Canadians really love to watch swimming, particularly at the Olympics. Do you think that's when we're going to start to notice this? I think that perhaps by Paris 2024, it can have an impact. But in 2028, we have the best thing to a home games down in L.A., and I think that that will have an impact on sport. And uh, let's not forget that Penny Alexiak was spotted as a 12-year-old. And, and right now it's our 12 and unders that seem to not be having the opportunity to, one, swim and perhaps even do other sports because of the restrictions that are in place. So it's a patchwork, it sounds like, across the country, right? Some jurisdictions are allowing pools to be open, others not. I think most, um, depending on the stage of COVID alert, um, have pools open, but it's the restrictions that then come into place that are preventing from everybody returning. So if we have less swimmers able to go in less facilities, the impact is that a good chunk, 50%, we could say, are not actually getting back. And at eight and under, we're at about 30% of those young people being able Mm -hmm. to get back in the pools. And I see that as a health issue, physical and mental health, and also a safety issue because we want all young Canadians to have the opportunity to try everything that Canada can offer. And and a lot of that comes around water. So we need strong swimmers. Uh, Is there a safe way to do it, do you think? Well, we've had uh, since... Uh, Since the pandemic and and pools closed essentially across the pool in March, we put together some very safe protocols with a national return to sport task force that I'm a member of. We took medical advice from Canadian Olympic Committee, Paralympic Committee, institutes and our own national team physicians to develop plans to come back to pools safely. And since that happened, we've had 14,000 swimmers 160,000 swims in pools with no reported COVID-19 spread or transmission. So I think we can do it safely, and I think we need to be able to continue to do it safely and have sport for young people as an essential service like going to school. John, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. No problem at all. Thank you. That's John Atkinson, High Performance Director at Swimming Canada, kind of sounding the alarm over the fact that their swimming club membership across the country is less than 50% of what it normally would be. And, you know, we're talking about a lot of kids under the age of 12 who are not in a swimming program. He made a great point with Penny Alexiak. And remember, she was 16 years old, got four medals at the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio. She was spotted as a 12-year-old for her championship ability. And John believes that we are as a whole generation that could potentially be missing out on that because of COVID-19.